And so, Lord, we thank you for your compassion and mercy and patience towards us. But, Lord, we also pray that you'd be working in us to shape and mold us to the image of your son. Because that's what we want to be. We want to be a church of people who are growing and changing, better reflecting the glory of Jesus to this, to this community with people playing all around us right now. It's a great reminder. We have been put here to shine for you. So may that be true, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So the kiddos... Uh, is there anyone who's kind of leading them specifically this morning? Or is it just, I'll head over there? Yeah, I'll head over there if you want. And when I mean kiddos, I mean under the age of 13. So I don't want to see any of you adults walking over there. Is our excuse to play? All right, we all good with the kiddos? All right, so let's uh, open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew. Matthew, everyone open to Matthew. Where's <laughs> Matthew chapter 18. So to, to kick things off here, what I've been doing is occasionally I talk about the structure of Matthew. Just to, You have to understand, Matthew has a flow to the gospel. Matthew has uh, organized his gospel uh, specifically to help us understand who Jesus is, to understand the flow uh, of what, what's going on in the life and teaching of Jesus. And I've mentioned several times that there's five different teaching times focused teaching times that Jesus lays out in the Gospel of Matthew, all right? The first one, again, this is kind of a quiz. When was the first major teaching, prolonged teaching in the Gospel of Matthew? Sermon on the Mount, right? And his main theme there is, here's what righteousness, my kind of righteousness in my kingdom, here's what it looks like. You've been given, you've been shown and modeled and taught a certain kind of righteousness by who? The Pharisees, he says, hey, the righteousness I'm talking about, you have to have one that's greater than theirs to be in my kingdom. And that was shocking. And then he lays it out. He, gets, he says, look, it's, we're getting to the heart of God's word here, the Torah. And so he lays out this righteousness. And at the end, it should be like, ooh, I can't be that righteous. And the, and the whole point is, yeah, you can't unless you follow the Messiah and he does something, right? So that was the first teaching time. The next one was chapter 10. Chapter 10 is where he takes the disciples and he's sending them out as sent ones. That's actually the first time we get the word apostle. That's apostoli means to send out. And he sends them out in twos to start preaching on their own in Israel. And then they would come back and he would re, you know, help them figure things out, what they did right, what they did wrong. It was, it was more training for them. But the theme there was ministry. And a lot of us, he's preparing them for what kind of reaction? What kind of reaction should they expect when they go out preaching about Jesus? Op opposition, and they're going to get persecuted, right? Ministry, but hey, prepare yourselves. You're going to go town to town, and you're, it's going to be, I'm divisive. <laughs> There's preaching about Jesus. That's, that was his second major discourse, all right? The third one is where he starts in chapter 13, he starts kicking into the parables, He's using parables as a form of condemnation. All those who've rejected him, 
from Isaiah, it was par the parable, parabolic teaching was actually condemnation for their rejecting him. But these parables were all about a certain topic, and the topic was kingdom. the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom. It's his kingdom. And the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he gives all these different examples, and that's what his teaching is to, and for those who have their eyes open, followers of his, it's to show, look, for instance, like a mustard seed. Why did he say it's like a mustard seed? <clears throat> Starts small and then just explodes. It gets huge. The smallest seed that the Jews were used to in Israel was the mustard seed. Little tiny thing. But some of these mustard seeds could go up to 17 to 25 feet. They were, so, they were such big bushes, they would call them trees. Birds could actually nest them. The point was the gospel of the kingdom will explode. <coughs> That was his second teaching, or I mean, I'm sorry, that was his third. The fourth one is what we're launching into right now. Chapters 18 through 20 is all about the sons of the king. How do they live, the sons and daughters? How do citizens, how does the family of God, this new community, the community of the Messiah, how do they live with each other? All right? It kicked off last week when it was the whole thing about the temple tax. What do... Sons have to pay to the temple. They don't have to pay anything, but Jesus did anyways. He didn't want to offend them. He did. That wasn't the major point, but it was it was the launching point to say, look, you are as sons, followers of me, being incorporated into the family of God. You're now a son of the kingdom, and this is how you should live with each other. And that this first section is he launches off to the main key theme. It's humility. Isn't that funny? The main theme. To live in community is humility. And what is the, in the and it's funny because it, he launches, he takes, he takes uh, the, the question, the, the squabble that these disciples are having, and you can see it there, it's, you know, who's going to be greatest? Who's going to have the position of prominence with you, Jesus? And he turns it right on their face, and that's what this is all about. So this, these next two chapters, or 18, 19, 20, so three chapters, are going to be things that we are going to be confronted with, okay? And humility is kind of a, a, a theme that runs all the way through it, and, and we'll kind of, I, we have to, it's really, uh, the whole point is to be looking at self, okay? So you guys ready to do that? No, yeah? You just can't wait for this to be so we can get the barbecue? No, let's eat the word, right? So let's get into this, here we go. So we're in, uh, in 18 verses, uh, we'll just do verses one or two first. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. They're in Capernaum, by the way. They're inside a house. It's probably Peter's house. He owned a house there. He had a family. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put that child in the midst of them. I'll just stop there for right now. So we see the disciples being just like us. We may not say that out loud. Who's the greatest in this church? But if I know any of you, you're human beings. You all at some point probably struggle with pride a little bit. No? Anyone struggle with pride ever? No. Never. Right? So they're doing something that, that we, would, we would get because we're a lot like them. But here's the deal. The reason it's coming up is that what the transfiguration that just happened, Mount Hermon, Probably maybe a week before, maybe at the most. But the problem was there's only three disciples with Jesus. 
All right, so you know some of the guys are feeling left out. You guys ever felt left out? Yeah. No one likes yeah. that, right? <laughs> no one likes that. So nine of the disciples are feeling left out. As a matter of fact, you know, as they come about, come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, we find the nine disciples also kind of didn't do something right. Do you guys remember that? They couldn't cast the, the demon out of the boy. And they looked bad in front of all the people. So there's the little stuff going on here. Pride's, you know, pride's a little bruised right now. Do you guys get this? You got to remember the, the context is always what we have to hop in here to realize why is Jesus bringing this up and why are they reacting the way they're reacting? And then Jesus, just before this, had talked about the sons of the king. And they're starting to look around. Well, he's the Messiah. He's the king. We're his followers. Those three went up with him. Well, what about us? So they're starting to fight. Who's the greatest? Who's going to sit at your right hand and your left? What position of power? Status, prestige, right? You guys identify with what they're, what they're going through at all? Never. You've never worried about that work? Who's getting the promotion? How come that person got picked before me in kickball and, and I'm the last one picked? No? You guys all felt that sometimes. So you know what's going on here. <clears throat> Pride. Pride is in their midst, and that's not good. And so Jesus really launches into just a real extended theme here of, of humility because without humility we're in trouble in the summer of 1986 two ships collided in the black sea off the coast of russia hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters below news of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident it wasn't a technology problem like radar malfunction or even thick <coughs> fog the cause was human stubbornness each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first. By the time they came to their senses, it was too late. Folks, if we let pride fester in the church, it will destroy the church. It just does. That's what pride does. Pride does the opposite of build unity, build community, build friendship. Because if we're all looking out for self, it means we want to climb on top of other people's shoulders to get ahead. Me first, right? So he's, he's, Jesus is going to address this straight on. Church politics. You know, politics at work, we all know about that, but po church politics happen too. There's people jockeying for position. Every church I've been to, I've seen it. Pride. That's why we have to work hard at unity in the body. In Ephesians, Paul says this, chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. I'm in prison, writing to you Ephesian Christians. Please listen to this. Chapters 1 through 3 are about all the incredible things God has done on our behalf. And now he's switching to here's how we respond to him. And the first thing he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility. And gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Meaning, I we, we recognize that we're all different, we're all weird, and we learn to love each other despite our flaws and foibles. And then here's the key thing. Eager to maintain the unity in the bond of peace. The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here's the deal. When you became a Christian, immediately... 
you were united to the body of Christ. You didn't just get united to Christ and, and to God. You became united to other Christians. So he's saying in our local body, we have to be eager to maintain that which is already there and to work hard at it. Eager means we're always watching out to make sure it's happening. That's why I want this church to always be known as a loving, welcoming church where we care for each other. I don't care if we have the best programs in the world. I mean, we want to see things develop for our youth and everything like that. But if we do not have a place where there's unity and love, we shouldn't be a church. Because if we're not unified, loving each other, Jesus says in John 17, the world has a right to say, Jesus isn't from God. Look at his followers. They're not unified loving each other. Read it, John 17, 20 through 24. So you guys, we have to be working hard at this humility, this unity in the body. And then Jesus, to illustrate his point, he brings this child into the presence. This may have been, many commentators think this may have been Peter's own child or a, or a relative. But brings the child right into the midst of them as the illustration, right in front of all these men. And here's the deal. A child's place in ancient Near Eastern society, that's from thousands of years before Christ up to the time of Christ. They just call that ancient Near East. Okay? A child in many cultures was not, was not even to be seen or heard. In Jewish culture, they were loved, but they had no status. We love you, but when the adults are around, stay out of the way. But Jesus constantly was telling the disciples, no, we, we take care of these kids. They were the most powerless members of ancient society. In Jewish culture, they were loved. They weren't despised. But the point is that, that why he's using this child's example is that a child does not clamor for status in a group of adults. What is, it, what is the child? And we're not talking about being childish. We're probably childlike. What, is it, what are the characteristics of a child in the midst of adults that Jesus would be trying to emphasize? What do you think? Maybe shy. Huh? Trusting. Trusting. Uh, shy, but instead of being aggressive and me first, kind of is far. Okay, what else? Trusting. Teachable, right? Gossiping, do you think, about that so-and-so adult? Yeah, probably not, right? There's a certain, we call it innocence, right? And that's what he's trying to put forward, saying, look, you guys, you're fighting for position. How you should be is like this child, childlike, trusting that Jesus is going to do what he's going to do, how he wants to do it, when he wants to do it, using who he wants to do it. And we just trust him and his plans. Jesus, it was a shocking illustration. You got to understand what he did right there was not done in Jewish culture. So what he did was just like, it was like a slap in their face. You guys, smack. What's, the, what's all this pride about? This is how you should be. So you want to be one of my disciples? This is how you should be. The absolute, the, the, the point is the absolute necessity of humility, faith, and trust. So then verses 3 and 4, he, he, he goes on. He starts talking about the key to greatness in the, in the kingdom is humility. And he said, truly, I say to you, remember he's saying I, he's using my own authority. He started to do that in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard of what others said, but I say to you. And he's saying, and that word truly is amen, right? So be it. Truly. I say to you, unless you turn, 
Unless you repent and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what does humility look like? Because his point, it doesn't need a lot of teaching as far as what does humility mean. But what does it look like? What do you think humility looks like? Considering others to humble yourself. What are you quoting? Philippians 2, exactly. We'll get to that in a second. Way to go. Right on. Are there any examples of humility in Scripture for us to look at in action? <laughs> Jesus washing his disciples' feet. My goodness, absolutely. Yes, have you ever done that at a church where you've washed someone else's feet? <laughs> that, exactly. But here's the deal. It was worse at Jesus' time. Who are the ones that did the washing the feet in a Jewish household? The, the lowest. It's usually the servant who was in the most trouble. That was what, who did it in the house because it was the grossest of tasks. Because remember, they didn't have shoes necessarily like us, and they didn't have you know cement walkways. It was all dusty and dirty, and usually they're in flip-flop, well, flip sandals, gooey, muddy, dirty, ew, right? And Jesus did that for his, and it's funny because he's sitting around the table. He's the guest of honor. He's supposed to be taken care of first, and yet he's the one because they're all sitting around and no one had done it because they're all trying to fight for position. He says, you know, i got to teach them something here. We'll get to that later. That's coming up in a few chapters. But here, that's, that's a great example of humility. And we have in Philippians 2, you brought up Philippians 2. We'll get to that in just a second. But that's, that's so important. In the context of Matthew 18, 4, it is important. This is a translation. I have translators notes for like Wycliffe Bible translators and they said look when you want to express this in another culture that doesn't understand the word humility necessarily says you should you should use a phrase an idiomatic expression something like one who causes his heart to bow down because humility is a picture it's not an abstract it's a picture that we're supposed to think about one who makes his heart small Think about that. What do we call somebody who's conceited? Big. They've got a big head, right? One who makes his heart small, right? That's that's the picture of humility. Uh, the attitude is spiritual abasement, leading one to perceive or even lament his littleness and guilt. Ah, we don't want to camp there, do we? When we think about me, I want to think about I'm a pretty good guy compared to no, humility says, you know, compared to God, I'm not. As a matter of fact, compared to others, wait, I, I got to see, I'm not trying to compare myself. I want to consider them better than myself. And we'll get to Philippians 2 in just a second. But the first part in verse 3 is that humility admits a need. And humility admits that that need is we need salvation. Pride says, hey, I'm able, I can do it all on my own, right? I'm self-sufficient. Hey, bless you. That ain't Christianity. Christianity is about admitting need, and humility it recognizes that. It recognizes God's greatness and holiness, my sin, and I fall so far short. Consider, reckon others more significant than yourselves. Ooh, failure. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, of others. See, humility is not just considering, it's also acting. It's looking to help others. 
And if you look at the rest of Philippians chapter 2, it's the greatest single chapter on humility in the Bible. Because in, in, in Philippians, it goes through an order. First, we have 2, 3, and 4 saying what humility is. And then 5 through 11 is all about Jesus. He, is, he says, let your attitude be like that of Christ. And he says, who though being God, humbled himself. Why did he come to humble himself? So he could die, and because that God lifted him up and exalted him. Then the next example is Paul himself. Hey, my life, I don't care if I'm being poured out as a drink offering for your sake. My life is a sacrifice. Praise God, because more of you become Christians. Praise God. Then he uses Timothy. Hey, I'm going to send Timothy to you. He really does love you guys, and he's been sacrificing on your behalf for me. Oh, and then Epaphroditus, the last guy. Epaphroditus is the one who brought the gospel to Colossae and also Laodicea. Who says, you guys sent Epaphroditus to me, and he's a great guy. He almost died serving me on your behalf, and now he's heard that you guys are struggling, and he wants to get back to you, so please, you know, honor him for his work. See, here's the deal. Humility is willing to sacrifice self for others. Humility gets active quick, but it starts with you know what? I'm not more important than them. I don't need my needs first. I want to make sure that they're being taken care of. Does this make sense? Because pride does not do that. Pride says it's all about me and me first. So if we want a community that honors God and that where we're, we're learning to love each other more and more and more, it's a humility has got to be central. So we're going to really be focusing on that in the next few weeks uh, because of what Jesus is doing here. And we're not talking about false humility either, okay? False humility is, is you know, it's, it's just pride of a different sort. It's, it's saying, oh, I can't really do it. I'm not really any good. But you're really saying, you know, go ahead and tell me how good I am. Just a way of trying to get praise. True humility means knowing yourself, accepting yourself, and being yourself. We're not saying, oh, I'm good, I, and everyone likes me. It's not talking about that. But it's just being honest and realistic about who you are. All right? To the glory of God, in God's, in God's perspective. It means avoiding two extremes. Thinking less of yourself than you ought to, as Moses did. What did Moses kind of do the false humility thing? To be the speaker. He says, oh, I've got a, I'm going to trip up when I say it. I have a speech impediment, blah, blah, blah. God said, I'm sending you on a mission, and I created you. I'm telling you you can do it. Well, because of being a pain, I'm going to have your brother be the spokesman. And here he comes. All right? But that was false humility. Moses was raised for 40 years under the best education you could get in the world at that time. He'd already proven himself somewhat of a leader. You know, so God was just like, come on. Learn this false humility. Just get to serving. Or we have to be careful, too, obviously, thinking more highly than of ourselves than we ought to. A truly humble person does not, does not deny the gifts and abilities and talents that God has given you, but uses them to glorify God. But here's the deal. Uses them. True humility always gets active in serving others. Right? Because that's the example we have. Whenever someone's humble in Scripture, there's somebody who are serving. God, use me. I want to be a blessing. At the end of their life, they want to be able to look back and say, God, use me. Praise God. I'm burnt out, fried. That's all right. God, use me. I made a difference by the 
to the glory of God, by the power of God. Humility is active. It doesn't sit around and say, I'm not good enough. Humility gets busy. Humility and scripture are just real quick examples. We talked about Jesus watching the disciples feet. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Does that sound frightful? <coughs> Blessed are those who mourn because they recognize how sinful they are. Blessed are the meek, those who are gentle, not running over people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I recognize that I'm messed up and I need Jesus to change me. I want to be more like him. Doesn't sound prideful, does it? Blessed are the pure in heart. They want to be more like Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. I don't know prideful people who are peacemakers, do you? Humility is key to being somebody. This is blessed. Those are God will bless you if you're that way. Joshua. Joshua 7, 6. In front of everybody, he tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads in front of at least 2 million people, publicly showing repentance on behalf of the people, even though he didn't do anything wrong. It was the sin of AI around the city. Anyway, the bottom line is, is that he was not ashamed, not too prideful to show just absolute mourning in front of God, in front of all the people. David, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of, of your own have we given back to you. Had we're nothing in front of all people, we are nothing. Who are we? Who do we think we are? You're God, and the fact that we come with offerings is just because you didn't exist in the first place. John the Baptist, when did he show humility? neck 
and to be thrown into the depths of the sea. What he's doing now is he's talking about what, why is humility so great? Humility's greatness is it looks to serve others, okay? Both positively, and there's a negative concern too. The first part is, in verse five, is that humble sons or citizens of his kingdom, people who are part of his family, seek others best. And this is where Jesus starts using uh, the, the example of the child to kind of not just talk about children biologically, but also children in the faith. What's a child in the faith mean? A new believer, right? Okay. So this is where he starts changing. He's going to kind of put those together. Because we are to care for our children. We are to absolutely – God does play favorites in his church. Who is it? Children, but also in a couple other classes, widows and orphans. They get spe extra special treatment, and we are, as a church are commanded to show favoritism towards them in a sense of protecting them and looking to serve them. You guys know that? And that's one of the things God will measure his church by. So, so we talk about children, but we also talk about new believers. All right, So keep that in mind as we, as we talk about it. So it says, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. To receive is that idea of hospitality, to welcome in, to feel welcome and, and invited to be a part of. It's to be hospitable, to accept. And here's the deal. The picture that he's using here is when a new believer comes to the church and becomes a Christian at your church, you are to do everything you can to make sure they get connected, loved, and discipled. Right? The first part is helping them just understand, hey, welcome to the family. We should be the first people. That's the coolest thing with Ed. I'm sorry, Ed, you're standing up and I get the point of <laughs> right away. But, but when I, I've done this several times. When someone becomes a Christian, I love this. It's a, the, my favorite thing to say, welcome to the family. Eternity is changed for you forever. True. Isn't that cool? It's so cool. But it doesn't stop there. We have to pay, not just pastors, but the whole church has got to pay extra special attention to anyone who's new in the faith to make sure they get planted, plugged in, and then watched out over. Because think about it. You're a new believer. You're just kind of getting the things, just the beginning elements figured out. What are you susceptible to? I can't hear you guys. What? False teaching. When I was talking to, uh, I was talking, who was I talking to the other day? Oh, I was talking, okay, talking to this one gal. Uh, she's a high schooler, and I surfed with her, with her dad and found out that she's really checking out Christianity. As a matter of fact, they might visit here sometime, the guys I surf with. And, and she's checking out Christianity, and she goes, yeah, you know, I started, I went to, you know, FCA, and it was really cool, and my friend took me to the Catholic Church here, and I've been going to, and so we just talk a lot, you know, about trying to help her get her brains wrapped around the differences and stuff. But but she needs extra special care. She wants to become a Christian. And when she becomes a Christian, we have to help her, you know, figure these things out. And how does she, how does that happen? Spending time. Spending time getting God's word, right? And showing her how to study. And that's just her, but like Ed and I, we meet. And, and there's many examples where you've met and, and if you think about your own life as you as a Christian. It started with just, uh, what is Malachi? What, what in the world? I, I got the Gospel of John, but now there's all these other books I got to read. What? We got to help them. It doesn't come naturally. The Christian life does not come naturally. That's called discipleship, you guys. And who does the discipling? I'm looking at it. 